Welcome to Catholic Living, a podcast that seeks to be a user's guide to the Catholic faith, where we boldly ask, what if this stuff is all true? How then should we live? This is brought to you by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. I'm Tom Hoops. I'm writer in residence here at the college, and you can read what I write at alatea.org or at excorde.org. Today I want to give signs of hope for Christianity. How can we hope in the future of Christianity? The cover of Newsweek magazine recently declared the decline and fall of Christian America. Time magazine famously decades ago asked, is God dead? And answered, kind of, yeah. And then, of course, we're coming up to Christmas where we'll see all sorts of stories like a recent magazine cover that purported to tell how the story of Christmas came to be. And the way the story of Christmas came to be was not that God became man in Jesus Christ and people wrote about it, but that various myths and mythologies were concocted to create the story that we know as the Christmas story. So we live in a world where Christianity seems to hit a wall where we hear all the time about the nuns and the masses of people leaving the church. We see predictions that the era of European Christianity will be over by 2067. So I'm here to bring you hope in the midst of all of this bad news. The real good news is that there are at least 10 ways that I can think of that Christianity is on the rise. And first of all, the first way Christianity is clearly on the rise is that Christian numbers worldwide are growing. There have been a spate of books in the 21st century. God is back by the editors of The Economist. There's The Next Christendom by Philip Jenkins, who's a researcher. And then my favorite, The Triumph of Faith by Rodney Stark, which trace the numbers as they actually are in the world today of religion. As the editors of The Economist say, almost everywhere you look, from the suburbs of Dallas to the slums of Sao Paulo to the back streets of Bradford, England, you can see religion returning to public life. The global numbers are impressive. In 1900, about 67% of the world belonged to either Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, and Hinduism. By 2005, that had grown to 73% of the world, so almost three out of every four people belonged to Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, or Hinduism in 2005. If current trends continue, by 2050, 80% of the world, so 8 out of 10, will belong to Christianity, Islam, Buddhism, or Hinduism. If you look specifically at Christianity, you see numbers growing as well. So in Africa, in the year 1900, there were about 10 million Christians. Uh, by the year 2000, so the beginning of the 21st century, there were 400 million, and the number has grown since then. Today in India, there are five times as many Catholics as there are in Ireland. There's five times as much as just about anything you want in India as Ireland, because there's so many people in India. But I think it's significant still. Irish people are known for exporting their faith and culture throughout the world. Well, Indian people today are the ones who are exporting their intellectual know-how around the world. Uh, in many ways, in many fields. So I think it's great that there are five times as many Catholics in entrepreneurial India as there are in Ireland. God is back in China as well. 
Whether you count the underground church or the official government-sanctioned Catholic church, you have growth in Catholics in China. This is coinciding with efforts to destroy the church or destroy churches in China, and the population of Catholics is just growing. By the year 2030, this research suggests China will have more churchgoers than America. So we often are baffled by what's coming out of the Vatican, and with good reason, there's some baffling things that are coming out of the Vatican. But uh, one thing we don't keep in mind is that the Vatican is speaking not just to the uh, very small Catholic population in the United States of America or in much of Europe, but in the growing, burgeoning Catholic population throughout the world. Uh, you see this with the new pope who comes from South America. And while Argentina is not seeing a huge uh, growth in Christianity or in Catholicism, much of South America is. Rodney Stark, in his book, Triumph of Religion, shares surveys of more than a million people living in 163 nations that claim 81% now belong to an organized religious faith, and many of the rest report attending religious services or taking part in religious activities. He says that 74% say that religion is an important part of their daily lives. He says that there are very few nations where as many as 5% even claim to be atheists. And only in Vietnam, China, and South Korea do atheists exceed 20%. A great kind of example of this is the former Soviet Union, where the government imposed atheism on people. Uh, and of course, the Berlin Wall came down in 1989. Since then, religion has grown by leaps and bounds. Uh, by 2007, 84% of the Russian population believed in God. A 2014 headline in the Russian news taunted, who's godless now? Russia says it's the United States as Putin seizes on the issue of traditional values. All right. Now, I'm not a big fan of Putin or his understanding of traditional values, but the case is clear that in Russia, there's a resurgence of traditional values while in the West, they're dying out. The Patriarch Kirill, who's a leading figure in the Orthodox Russian Orthodox community, said, We have been through an epoch of atheism, and we know what it is like to live without God. We want to shout to the whole world, stop. And you see the numbers creeping up. Pew Research Center released some um, uh, data on Russian religion, and you see Orthodox Christianity growing, you see other religions growing, you see more people believing in God, more people believing in life after death, more people describing themselves as at least somewhat religious. Over the last century, the Orthodox Christian population has more than doubled around the world and stands now at 260 million. In Russia alone, it has surpassed 100 million, a sharp, sharp, sharp resurgence after the fall of the Soviet Union. And despite that, the percentage of Christians who are Orthodox has dropped because Protestantism and Catholicism has grown so much more. There are some signs here and there of a resurgence in Christianity also in Europe. But then I've read this very compelling article by Will Collins who says, the, who talks about the myth of a Christian revival in Eastern Europe. And he says, uh, it's not really happening. So Christianity is not reviving in Europe. However, it is reviving all over the world such that today Christianity is much browner and blacker 
if you will, than it has been for a long, long time. If you look at 1900, about two out of three Christians worldwide were white. Uh, if you look at 2009, about one out of four were white. So already it's the vast majority of Christians are uh, black or brown, if you will. By 225, it's less than one out of five Christians in the world will be white. So the church is not looking like it used to, but it is growing, right? So the stereotypical Christian is no longer the Irish Monsignor or the white patrician gentleman, but maybe an African woman, maybe a Pentecostal in South Africa is the new kind of stereotypical Christian. And this is significant because Christianity looks a lot different in these different places. In the West, Christianity was often a top-down kind of um, affair. You had to be Christian because it was expected of you. It was socially expedient. Christianity fell into this Western systematizing mindset where it all has to be laid out in a scheme that's uh, very logical, which is great. I'm not against that at all, but there's a different kind of reality is happening in the Christianity that is growing throughout the world. You have a more personal faith, a more sort of communal faith, people who are orthodox, not because somebody told them they have to be, but because they have this love of Jesus Christ and this desire to know him in his full truth. You have a lot of more mysticism, more devotions. I mentioned a lot of more Pentecostalism. Uh, and you have obedience coming out of personal conviction that comes from being persecuted rather than obedience coming from being socially expedient. So that's great news for Christianity. And it's no wonder if you haven't heard this because major American and European thinkers basically have ignored this. You saw even the Christian magazine, Christian History. It wrote about the 100 most important Christian events in church history for the last uh, 100 years at the end of the 20th century. And it totally missed the fact that Christianity had just blown the top off in Africa. You had the famous Samuel Huntington book that was popular after 9-11 called The Clash of Civilizations and the Remaking of the World Order, where he saw this clash between the secularized West and the religious uh, Islamic world and totally missed the fact that there's a huge Christian population growing right alongside these uh, Islamic uh, majorities also. Speaking of which, Islam is also growing by leaps and bounds. And all of this is about to be increased exponentially because of demographic factors. Uh, there was a recent study of fertility that looked at fertility rates worldwide and saw that half of the world's national populations are disappearing. So France, for instance, does not have a replacement fertility rate. So French people will no longer be a thing. They'll just be a memory in a couple of generations. The same with Austrian populations, German populations, populations from Spain. Uh, Chinese population is really big, so it'll take longer, but they don't have a, a replacement fertility rate. The places that do have a replacement fertility rate are religious places, often Islamic places. So in Niger, Chad, Somalia, Mali, Afghanistan, the typical woman will have six to seven children in a lifetime. 
compared to 1.3 in Singapore or 1.4 in Spain. Uh, and this will make a huge impact quickly on the world's religious makeup as religious people literally outpopulate the secularized West. So the first way Christianity is on the rise is it just is. The numbers are just going like gangbusters, growing like never before. The second way, and in this I want to look at the United States and the West a little bit more, or especially the United States, is that nominal Christianity is dying. Nominal Christianity is dying. Let me explain what I mean. The world wants you to believe that Christianity in the West is dead because it's stupid and people are have had enough and they're moving on. Some religious people also support this narrative because they romanticize the past, especially the recent past, the post-war religious bump in the 50s and 60s when everybody was going to church and it looked like religion was strong and had always been strong. But what's the true narrative? The true narrative is that religiosity has never been the norm in America. It's never been the vast majority of people who were hyper-religious. And really, the level of religiosity that we see today is not that different from what we saw 100 years ago. Let me explain. And I'm relying on a couple books here. One is God's Century by Monica Toft, Daniel Philpott, and Timothy Shaw about the resurgent religion and global politics. And the other one is The Churching of America from 1776 to 1990 by Rodney Stark, this time with fellow researcher Roger Fink. And starting with Rodney Stark and Roger Fink, they find that the number of adherents to a religious denomination has grown steadily throughout America's history. It dropped a little bit during the Civil War, but it has grown steadily throughout the 20th century and only leveled off recently entering into the 21st century. They see the same thing with church attendance numbers doing the best they can to piece together the historical record, they found that about 40% of people attended church services in 1940 and uh, about 40% do today. Uh, so how do we account for this? How do we square this with our attitude and our understanding of history? Where do these numbers come from? And most importantly, how do we square this with the new datum that we're always hearing about the rise of the nuns. Well, on the one hand, I wouldn't want to understate the problem that we face today in secularism. It's definitely true that religion has become less popular in the West and in the United States than it was before, and it certainly is less popular than it is in the rest of the world. However, if you look at the information about the nuns, you'll realize that they mostly come from people who weren't religious anyway. So in other words, what we're seeing is that people who would say in the past, yeah, I'm religious, I'm Christian, even if they weren't, even if they had never darkened the door of a church, now are not going to say that. They're going to tell you the truth and say, no, I'm not Christian, right? There's one graph I like to share with my students. One Axis marks the rise of evangelical Protestants, and the other, the decline of mainline Protestants. The two lines cross somewhere in the 1980s, where people were much more likely to say, I am Christian, I'm an evangelical Christian, than they were to say, I'm a United Methodist, or I'm a Baptist, or I'm a Lutheran. In fact, 
Gallup in 2015 said evangelicalism had grown throughout the 21st century. And it said that United States adults who self-identify as evangelical or born again had risen as a percentage of the population in that same amount of time. So if you think of Leave it to Beaver and shows of that era, you saw families that were wholesome, all-American families, but you never saw them pray, you never saw a religious symbol on their wall, you never heard them refer to church. There was even then this sense that Americans can be wholesome and a great family and not go to church. Today, you are seeing that people are returning to church, but not enthusiastic about necessarily saying that they are to pollsters. Uh, Glenn Stanton of Focus on the Family says the nuns are simply those who until recently would have identified as a Christian denomination because that's what their family has always been. Ed Stetzer has been a sort of prophet in the darkness about this whole phenomenon. And he points out that not only are Christians more likely to be convictional Christians than congregational Christians nowadays, but precisely those Christian denominations that most adhere to the truths of the gospel are those that are growing. So he says the theological conservatism of both attendees and clergy is the most important factor predicting church growth, right? So I, this is, I think this is clear from my personal case. I don't think this narrative that a bunch of people have understood Christianity and rejected it makes any sense at all. I'm 52, and when I went to CCD in the 1980s, nobody told me about the real presence. Nobody told me that missing mass was grave matter that could be a mortal sin. Nobody took me to confession for decades. Uh, and this was in the 1980s. The idea that people know about religion or know these things and have rejected them is ludicrous. Of course nobody believes in the real presence. Nobody's ever told them about the real presence. Of course nobody goes to mass. Nobody's ever told them to. When was the last time anybody told you that you should baptize your infant? I haven't ever heard it in church. I may have heard it at a baptism I was at where a priest said, it's great that you're baptizing this child, but I never heard preach from the pulpit that it's important to baptize an infant. So of course people aren't going to report that they believe in things that they've never been told to believe in. Again, I don't want to overstate this, but I think Ross Douthat put it well in a column that he wrote in the New York Times uh, in 2019 called The Overstated Collapse of American Christianity. He pointed out that lukewarm Christians may be declining much more dramatically than intense religiosity is declining, and that the waning of Christianity may be still as much of a baby boomer story as a millennial one. In fact, there are polls even today that indicate that with the passage of time, nuns start to identify with a religion as they get older. This was a phenomenon we were told is no longer the case, but the numbers still bear it out, at least to a degree. Now, how about Catholics in particular? Douthat says that the Catholic number, with more people leaving the Catholic Church, may be affecting the overall number, that maybe we're dealing with a Catholic problem that is infecting the others. And again, I, doesn't surprise me because 
in the Catholic Church, I've never heard people tell me that I should do these things. Also, we have all these Catholic immigrants coming into the country, which is keeping our church going for now, but I haven't seen people reaching out to Catholic immigrants telling them that they should keep their faith, and I haven't seen a huge kind of uptick in outreach to Hispanic community and divine mercy devotions for Hispanic community and Spanish language masses, at least not in the places I've lived. Maybe you've seen them where you are. Uh, but again, it wouldn't be surprising if a church that does nothing to ask people to go to church is losing members. It's interesting to look at the numbers, and this is a CARA study about um, religious attendance by state. And this is actually a little bit old now. I've tried to find an updated version of it, but haven't. This is about 15 years old, something like that. Uh, so take it with a grain of salt. But back when they did this study, they found that mass attendance was way, way higher in the Midwest per Catholic than it was in uh, the heavily Catholic states in New England and on the West Coast. And I'm proud to report that the place with the highest per capita mass attendance, so this is um, highest per capita of Catholic mass attendance, uh, is Kansas, where most of the Catholics, more of the Catholics in Kansas go to Mass than anywhere else in the country. Nebraska is a close second. So numbers are growing. The um, convictional Christians are taking over the scene. Nominal Christians are dying away. A third way Christianity is on the rise is the renewal of the sacraments. So I just complained that nobody's telling anybody about the sacraments anymore. Well, they're starting to. In 2001, you had John Paul II release uh, a series of communications, I've talked about these before, about how important confession is, uh, leading up to his 2003 encyclical where he said that uh, in order to receive the Eucharist, you have to confess your sins, right? This again went largely ignored. The U.S. bishops, to their credit, at the time uh, created a document called Happier Those Who Are Called to His Supper. At any rate, you had Benedict XVI take up this same call. He said, to a great extent, the renewal of the church in America depends on the renewal of the practice of penance, of confession. Pope Francis has promoted confession tirelessly throughout his pontificate. First of all, by his personal example, he says he goes to confession every two weeks. He often goes to confession in public so that people can see him going to confession. John Paul II said that priests should get in the confessional line so that everybody sees that they're going to confession also. Pope Francis started these 24 hours for the Lord that promote reconciliation and adoration. Just as an anecdotal example, here at Benedictine College, I used to time myself. I could get up from my desk, go to confession, and return to my desk, and it would take me about 12 minutes. I would walk over to the abbey, go to confession, and be back. Well, now, oh my gosh, I can't go to confession on campus because the lines are so long. It, it just takes too long. So the Sacrament of Confession is being renewed. The Sacrament of the Eucharist is being renewed. Throughout the 21st century, you had a number of documents from Pope John Paul II and then from uh, Pope Benedict saying that the Mass has to be authentic, the translation has to be authentic, the uh, rite of the Mass has to be right. Uh, so this thing has happened over and over again the church is finally getting on board saying, yes, you have to go to mass. Yes, you have to go to confession. So that's a sign of hope for the future. So another one is related. It's the rise of Eucharistic adoration. 
Eucharistic adoration was unheard of when I was a child. Uh, it was starting to crop up in a couple of places, but nowhere near as many as it is now. Uh, Pope Francis, again, has been a huge proponent of Eucharistic adoration. There was a time when if you asked a bishop, can we have Eucharistic adoration in my parish, the bishop would say, no, that's only for religious people in a convent or a monastery. Now, Pope Francis himself is broadcasting that he does a holy hour every day, and he's recommending to people that they start Eucharistic adoration in their parishes. The realpresence.org website listed 715 Eucharistic chapels nationwide in 2005. Uh, now it lists over 1,100 of them. And I would note that that website lists 12 perpetual Eucharistic adoration chapels serving the 3 million Catholics of Massachusetts. But for Kansas, is 436,000 Catholics, so a fraction of the number of Catholics. It lists almost four times that many, right? One of my students once told me that in Wichita, you can't throw a rock without hitting a Eucharistic chapel, which made me wonder why they were, she was throwing rocks at Eucharistic chapels. But there's a lot of Eucharistic chapels in Wichita is the point. And just uh, this month on Alatea, John Berger published a, an article about how Eucharistic adoration is drawing new generations of Catholics filled with quotes and data about how Eucharistic adoration is undergoing a resurgence, particularly with the young. Eucharistic adoration has been a big part of the resurgence of the faith on Benedictine College's campus. We've had Eucharistic adoration for about as long as we've had growing numbers of faithful. So I think there's a almost one-to-one -one correspondence between Eucharistic adoration and greater interest in the faith by young people. Speaking of which, a fifth reason that Christianity is on the rise is our strong Catholic youth movements. So when I was a kid, there was no Catholic youth movement whatsoever. There was no young adults group. There was no young persons group in my parish. Confirmation truly felt like a graduation from the faith, right? right? Like people joke about nowadays, and that's totally different now. So nowadays there's vacation Bible studies that were not a thing when I was a kid. Now we have all these young people coming, for instance, here at Benedictine College's campus for our BCYC weekends and learning about their faith and getting excited about their faith. There's Totus Tuus, which again, originates from Kansas. And I should do a whole podcast about how the renewal of the Catholic faith in America is in large part coming from Kansas. But that's for another day. So we have vacation Bible studies, such as Totus Tuus coming from Kansas. You have NCYC, the National Catholic Youth Conferences are getting large numbers of high school students together to celebrate the faith. You have Life Teen as a movement, and the Life Teen youth leaders come here to Kansas, to our Benedictine College campus every summer to be renewed and to sort of set their agenda for the following year. And then, of course, you have World Youth Days. So I've talked about World Youth Days before as this genius example of how Pope John Paul II is able to create a fact which will allow people to recognize something true about the church that they didn't recognize before. And these World Youth Days make young people recognize that the faith is young, the faith is vast, there's lots and lots of young people who are into their faith. You have millions of people coming to these things, creating the biggest mass events in the Western world 
in the past century. And then, of course, you have the pro-life movement. And the pro-life movement, if you've ever been to the March for Life in Washington, D.C., is largely a youth movement, right? Uh, and if you look at the way abortion polls, you'll find that the reason America is so pro-abortion is older people, not younger people. Younger people tend to see that you shouldn't kill infants. It's, it's so clear. You have to be in a strange headspace that lived through the 70s and 80s to think, oh, that's a good idea to kill babies. Um, young people tend to see that with imagination and with love, we can reach out to mothers and help them in difficult situations, and that the one solution need not be to eliminate a human being. So I have uh, pictures here that I'm filling my screen with of young people at uh, the pro-life march, but I don't think you can see those on the podcast. But one of them is uh, my favorite, which is Benedict College leading the March for Life recently, holding the big sign at the very front. And it reminds me of a quote from Nancy Keenan, who at the time was the president of NARAL, the National Abortion Rights Action League. And uh, she accidentally, she forgot that it was the Roe v. Wade anniversary and that it was the March for Life Day. So she got out of a metro station at Union Station in Washington, D.C. and looked around her and saw all these young people, all these young pro-lifers descending on the city. And she said, oh my gosh, there are so many of them and they are so young. She wasn't used to that in her movement where people tend to be older and where the activists tend to be older. So you have a growing number of young people interested in the faith also. And as a sign of hope, I think that we don't have time to fit all the signs of hope into one episode of this podcast. So I will return soon with the rest of the story. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Hoops, and this is the Catholic Living Podcast, produced by Ex Corde at Benedictine College in Atchison, Kansas. Our mission is to produce media that will transform culture in America through Benedictine's mission of community, faith, and scholarship. Visit us at excorde.org.